Tales of the Fantastic Podcast with J.N. Cameron and Matthew Moe. A discussion of inspirations, practices, and the fiction that we love. Too bad she won't live! I'm your huckleberry. But then again, who does? A podcast by writers for writers. Brought to you by Tuesday Night Publishing. This is part two of a longer conversation that uh, Joe and I had about post-apocalyptic and apocalyptic fiction inspirations. In the first section uh, on episode two... Uh, we talked about uh, some of the uh, big popular films that we loved that inspired us. This section, we move into some of the television stuff and as well as the literature. This will probably break up into two as well. Uh, but this is section two of that first conversation all about television and some of the books and literature that we love. Good so stuff. That's that's some of the film uh, some inspirations. Of the film. I want so to kind of good stuff move on to some of the stuff that we were thinking about. Like when I was, I'm going back to when I was a little kid. Yeah, yeah. And um, there were three or four episodes of The Twilight Zone that were oh. hugely influential to me. Of course. And I don't know if you remember all of these, but I'm I'm sure as soon as we start talking about them, you'll okay. you'll clue in okay. and remember. The first was one called Two. And it's uh, it has Charles Bronson, right, and uh, Elizabeth Montgomery, who was this is before she was bewitched. Okay, um, but it was it's the one where it starts with her. I'll have to go watch all these today, man. It's I, on Netflix. I've been trying to look through it. the twi- all the old Twilight Zones on Netflix. Yeah, this look, one's called Two. So what's it two. about? It's uh, these two people who meet in this burnt-out city after some kind of uh, either it's post-war. Okay, some kind of war that's destroyed the world. And it's a man and a woman who are on opposite sides. She's wearing one military outfit, and he's wearing the other. Okay. They can't really understand each other. He speaks English. She speaks another language. And it's just them kind of meeting, and it's so cool, man. Okay. And I'm sure that when I was little, because they used to play every night at 10.30 after the news on Fox 23, mm-hmm. they would play uh, The Twilight Zone. And I remember seeing this episode and just going, holy butts. And mainly because the same city set that they use is the same one they used for Star Trek for the episode Miri. What? Which is the one with the grups and the onlys. Do you remember yes. that one? Yes. And they get the yeah. disease and all yes. that stuff. Yes, yes, yes. I'm positive it's the same set. Really? it looks just the same. Okay, I'm going to watch both now. Yeah, so Miri is one of my favorite Star Trek episodes ever. There's so many Miri, things in that. yeah, it's a, it's a great episode. Um, so that's one too but then there's also a, a Time Enough to Last is the famous one with Burgess Meredith that's yes. the one where he breaks his glasses after yep. the, the okay. Yeah, I love that one um, he's, he's, he's left with all the books right he's so he's, excited because he hates his wife and she's super mean to him and then everybody dies and he's left with all the books and he wants and to read and then he breaks his glasses and he breaks his glasses yeah. oh man that would be me well, yeah, but the thing is, really, all he yeah, has that to was do, almost me during the coronavirus lockdown. <laughs> My internet went out for a couple hours, so and I thought, I thought like it was over. 
Well, the uh, other thing, like, man, too, what am I going to do without internet? <laughs> all he has to do it is, is go to a pharmacy and find another pair I know. of glasses. Why couldn't he do that? It's no big deal. But apparently, uh, the rest of the there's so many glasses yeah. in the world. I'm sure he somebody found somewhere had some glasses. That but was no, no. <laughs> he has to. You know, do Could that. he not no. just hold the books really close to his face? Apparently not. Okay. But uh, yeah, that was a great one. Of course, I didn't think about any of that stuff when I was a kid. I just saw that. <laughs> yeah. one. Oh, that's amazing. That was a good one, I admit. Uh, and then the last one of the Twilight Zone ones is one called The Midnight Sun. The Midnight Sun. I'm and this is to the think. one. It's this lady, and uh, she's an artist. Okay. And the Earth has somehow gotten screwed up on its axis or whatever. Okay. And it's drifting closer to the sun. Oh. And so. Daylight doesn't have... I mean, it's only daylight anymore. And it's anymore, getting hotter and, getting hotter, and, hotter, and hotter, hotter and hotter and hotter. And so yes. people are leaving and doing okay. all this stuff. And she and, and uh, this her neighbor across the street, uh, across the hall, are just trying to survive. Okay. And that's what it's kind of all about. And there's, a you know, the typical Twilight zone twist at the end. But the thing mm-hmm. that was cool to me is uh, at one point, they're afraid of... Uh, people breaking into their apartment building. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy who shows up who even says... I just need some attention, baby. You know, I mean, he's like, you know, hinting at the fact that he's going to come up them, come up there and attack them and like abuse them. Oh my god! And of course, it's like 1961. Yeah. And it's... they can't talk about that stuff on TV. No, there's no way. But uh, and you know, it's it's cool because he's not as bad as it turns out. But anyway, uh, I just as a kid, I remember going, "What's he going to do? What?" You know, because yeah, I had yeah. no idea. Uh, but stuff. watching it later, that threat that suddenly mm-hmm. appears is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I clearly remember that one. I remember that one in Time Enough to Last. I'm going to have to go find two. Yeah, find two. I'm going to have really to find good. two and watch it. It's really awesome. I mean, that's definitely dated, and it's nice. What about, man, we always talk about, let's get let's do the books last. I mean, let's talk a little about video games. Oh, sure. Like, video games have really, as modern writers, they inspire what we write. Oh, for you know, sure. Those of us who are geeks and love it. Yeah. And me and you have always loved the post-apocalyptic genre yeah. of video games. The well, first one I remember that I'm pretty sure, again, you introduced me to, I don't know how long ago it was, was the Fallout game. The, the original very first one was 97. Fallout. Yeah, 1997. That long ago? Yeah. That's crazy. And it's that top-down kind of, uh, you know, torchlight kind of right. version, you know, so yeah. you're looking over, you know, it's not... Uh, it's very different than the way they are now. The, the first modern person. games, no, it's one of the old digital sort of just so, 2D, and it's all on hexes and stuff. Yeah, you fight and it's almost like playing a role-playing yeah, game. It's, it really like, it's is. like they took a role-playing game and they just made it into a computer game. And for a while, they were actually trying to do that. They were trying. There was a couple of years where they were, you know, actively working to make a uh, pen and paper role-playing game of the Fallout series, mm-hmm. but I, I think that kind of fell apart. But, but that whole series is great. I, I remember playing the first one, the second mm-hmm. one. Uh, I don't think I finished the second one, but I finished the first one. And so, if you don't know what the Fallout games are, it, it, and they're all the same, they've they've gotten better as time goes on. Now they're huge, massive open world games. Yeah. But basically, you're someone who's emerged from a vault, like hundreds of years later after nuclear war has destroyed America. And that's just how it starts. Yeah. And you start seeing what's out there and surviving and yeah, scavenging. You're typically and tasked with something you're supposed to go find. You find the, the water chip yeah. for the vault so the people can survive or something, you know, uh, like a but water it's always, filtration. The biggest thing for me is I always feel like uh, what I loved about those, uh, those games uh, was just it's all environment. 
Yeah. I mean, that's all it is. All it's, environment. It's setting and environment. And that's I mean, the that's stuff what I we're love. talking about, really. Yeah. yeah, the apocalyptic environment. I was, I was uh, right after the coronavirus stuff started, I had to go to the store and uh, I had to get something like, like my water and my whatever for the week, do my shopping. And I was driving through downtown Tulsa and the streets were completely empty. I remember it was the middle of the day yeah. on a Monday. It was like noon. And I was driving because I lived downtown and I was driving through it there was nobody nobody there's streets and i saw a guy uh a, a poor individual who lives downtown you know doesn't have a home and he he was going he walks around wearing a jester's hat and like rags and he was sort of dancing down the sidewalk and he had a medieval oh, puppet on a jester stick <laughs> that he was waving around and he was just dancing through the apocalyptic wasteland and i thought it's here like all yeah, all the things I watched and saw as a kid, this sort of it reminded me of a scene from Mad Max absolutely. or something. Yeah, and uh, I saw the guy the other day dancing through downtown Tulsa in his dances all the time. And his, like his medieval jester's outfit. And, well, I just think that what's funny is that when we were kids, we used to, on the weekends we would rent a video camera, uh-huh. and we made our own Twilight Zone episode. That's right. With uh, <laughs> where a guy goes into a bathroom at a at a gas station. It was me. And then when he comes out, everyone's gone. And I, I remember our big special effect was I had bought a slushie, and I came out, and I saw that everyone on Earth had disappeared, and I dropped the slushie, and it splattered. And we were just amazed. But we And, and the way we and made I, it work is we <laughs> got up at 3 or 3 o'clock in the morning. That's right. And just wandered around downtown. My brother drove us around. Tommy drove us around, yeah. and if we could find that movie... I'm, that was I'm a sure post-apocalyptic classic. Maybe we could re-edit it yeah. and add some music. <laughs> there was a whole scene where, because it, it was getting, uh, I mean, it was going. It was a little bit later in the year, and there's one shot that we did downtown uh-huh. where you could see. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. Steam coming out of the manholes. That's right. Of the grates. Of the grates, and yeah, I was like, middle of the night. Holy butts! This, this is, is so cool. cool. Yeah. Um, and then there are times when you can actually see cars driving by in the background. Yeah. But most of the time, it worked. All right, man. Any other video games? Well, I mean that, the like, the big rec- the one recently, uh, 2013, Last of Us. That, that um, was the last game where I think we sat down and we played, we played it, it together. together. Yeah, we'll do that once in a while. Like Matt's a married guy and he has kids, but every once in a while, if like a really good game comes out, we'll we do send like the, kids the old off days to bed and we'll and we sit and play and we have it and down low. So because right. the language is awful in that game, and we plan on doing it with The Last of Us too if yeah. it ever gets finished. I don't June, know. I is it ever going to come out? Yeah. And The Last of Us was just an incredible post-apocalyptic Amazing. video game. If you love video games as much as we do, as much as Matt does. I mean, it, it's a game you can't miss. It, it was just so beautiful, yeah. the world they created, because yeah. it was uh, biological-based. It was a biological uh, infectant, right, that yeah, infected like people, and they become like a mold, and they become like these these plant-like zombies. Mm-hmm. And it was a really a beautiful infection. It was like yeah. real vivid green, like it's neon green vines everywhere. Because and you, flowers. Without and, giving the story away, you, there's... And this is one of the reasons why it's so good, is you're there at the beginning at the outbreak, mm-hmm. and then you shift to the action to thirty years later. Right. So you get right. to see what happens in the beginning, and you and and what informs the character, and then uh, uh, Joel is the guy's name, and then you fast forward to them having been living in a in kind of this state quor- quarantine zone where they've been eking out an, ex- an existence for a while. 
and you get to see what that life is like, and it's mm. really uh, it's amazing. But it, the game doesn't get really good until they get outside of that zone and they're traveling. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's when you get to see these overgrown cities and destroyed places, and it's it's amazing how beautiful that stuff can look. And and, and, the, and the ambush scene, of course. Oh, yeah, we we don't want to spoil it for no. people, but that's probably one of the greatest yeah. scenes in a video game Terrifying. I've ever played. It was so good. The, yeah. Well, I think, we, and we died several times trying to get oh, through it. we died so much. The other one, too, is because I've been recently um, trying to, you know, to be careful. Uh, but my daughter's 16 now, and so she was like, can I just at least see some of it? Yeah. And so we started playing a little bit, and again, oh, the language is terrible. <laughs> but there's a specific Isn't there scene. like a parental thing you can do? Isn't there something? There no. has to. That, why don't I, they do that with they video should. games? You need to have like a. If I ever make like a, game, a my daughter's playing button, like if where I you, ever make a game, <laughs> I'm going to make it so that you have the option. To, we're going to we're going to record two different things. We're going to record the dialogue for grownups, and we're going to record dialogue for kids. Are you going to be able to switch between the two? That would be perfect. I know. Or why can't Man, you do that? I don't know. I don't so know. So there's one scene too where he gets caught in a trap. Remember, and he gets mm-hmm. pulled up, and he's hanging oh, upside down. That's right. And she's trying to help him, and yes. you're hanging there, and you have to shoot the dudes yes. who are coming towards her. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. So Brilliant that one was game. that was so good. There's there's loads of others. There's loads. The, that that one for sure was was amazing. There was um. There was another. Any other games? Yeah. Well, I mean, we played kind of a. Uh, this is mid. This would have been when was mid eighties. Mid eighties is when it came out. But there's a game system called Twilight Two Thousand, which was based more on like the idea of Red Dawn. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is very similar to Aftermath, but yeah, more but like more about like what would happen if uh, Russian troops landed here? What would you do? That was a big thing when we yeah. were kids. Definitely. So we played that. We yeah. did that stuff, and Twilight Two Thousand was good. It it, ha- it was kind of complicated, but not as complicated as Aftermath. Mm-hmm. But that was a lot of fun. Um, all right, so we're going to move in now to, to kind of the post-apocalyptic literature oh, that nice. we love. Yeah, and I did the same thing. I kind of went through okay. by, uh, by kind of how I met these things. Yeah. So one of the first stories I ever read that was post-apocalyptic that I didn't know, and then all of a sudden I knew it was. And la- I think I in the last podcast I think I mentioned it, I and I quoted the wrong author. Okay, I said it was Guy de Maupassant. It's uh, not him. It's actually Stephen Vincent Benet. Ah, uh, okay, okay, um, okay. Yeah, Guy Maupassant's the lady with the white dog, I the French so. writer. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. No, yeah, by the waters of by Babylon. the waters of Babylon. Yeah. This kind of tribal post-apocalyptic thing where he travels into the city of the gods, right? Yes. And there's little, there's names, you know, there's partial it. names where they, you know, they've yeah. they can't read all of Washington, so they only see some certain letters, and they That's call right. them like Oingo or some, well, I don't remember what it is, but it's so good. Nineteen thirty nine. That's what blows. Can you me believe away. that? Yeah. How old that is, and that guy was thinking of it. And I know. Writing it, and, and there's brilliant. something That's... I because moving into some of the, these these other stories soon, there's something in the. Probably because they went through World War Two and World War One, and and you know what? It's it's such just. I think the post-apocalyptic imagination, like thinking about post-apocalyptic things, is such a huge part of our culture too. Yeah. Well, like I'm, seriously, I mean, it's ours. a huge part. Of, it's a part of the world's culture. Yeah. It's a part. I mean. It's a huge part of literature because it was a part of the Bible. Yeah, there's whole books of the Bible, you know, that deal with the apocalypse and what happens after the world ends. What do you call that in religion and cosmology? The end of the world. 
the like, last days? Like I guess it's called apocalyptic. Yeah, apoc apocalyptic. Yeah, that's yeah, the, the word I'm looking. Days, okay. Final days. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, yeah. Even uh, even in the even in some of the New Testament, I mean, the, the apostles say we're already in the last days. So it's kind of like yeah. I mean, it's been around for a long time. The, but the point I was trying to get to is some of my favorite post-apocalyptic literature or even apocalyptic ap apocalyptic stories are told in the UK. Yeah. There's something about what is that. Uh, well, just like just the British stories, like there's Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham, which is an amazing novel, uh, and uh, they actually in the mid '80s they had a miniseries on the BBC, which is incredible. Oh, that was so good! But that's the first time I think. Uh, I think Twenty Eight Days Later, I think Walking Dead, all of those guys, uh, those authors took the opening of the Day of the Triffids because that's what happens to this guy. He's mm -hmm. uh, he's hurt his eyes, and he's. Right. He's in the hospital, right? And the whole thing is everybody is talking about how they're looking up in the skies and they're seeing these lights, and the pe everybody who looks and sees it sees the lights becomes blind, right? So he doesn't see that, and so when he wakes up, he's kind of wandering aimlessly around because he's the only one who has sight, and it's these to make humans more easy to be so consumed good. by the Triffids, yeah. and that was 1951. John Wyndham, amazing. Um. So the next is uh, Ray Bradbury wrote a story in 1950 called There Will Come Soft Rains, which Man. is almost like poetry. Yeah, the, yeah, that, there's a beautiful, what's, what's, is that, that was a Bradbury theater one, wasn't it? I don't, I, I, I I'm pretty I sure remember. it was, and there, there were, this is the one about the house. Is this, this the one about the house that's yeah, just the dog sitting wanders there? Through. And the dog wanders through, and it's an, it's an automated smart house. Mm -hmm. That's just been sitting there during the apocalypse, right? Yeah. It's such a cool concept. I mean, who was writing about smart houses I know. in 1950? I know. It's amazing. Seriously? I know. It's incredible to me. That's I, one of the things why he always comes back to me is the stuff that he was just in his brain. He's a visionary. Yeah, he, absolutely. He's like a prophet of science fiction. And that's just one of the stories that did it. But that was, that was the first time I had ever thought about that first off, that humans would be gone and that other animals and stuff would be alive still moving through. There would be remnants just of us. It never occurred like, to me as a kid. Yeah. So I read this story and was just blown away. You know, The ruins of humanity yeah. and something wandering through it. Just that image. 1967, the first book was released and then it became a trilogy for young adults called mm -hmm. the Tripods Trilogy. And I, I read it. Wasn't it uh, made into a comics or graphic? I think the Tripods Trilogy was made into a I don't that I, I don't thought know. it was made into a comics. I don't know. It might have been. I've never I don't remember that. But it's a series. It's three books uh, by John Christopher uh -huh. about these kids who uh, it's a, about kind of after aliens have landed and have taken over the and world. You become a servant to you one. You are right? a servant. They when and you reach a certain brother. age at 16, you get yeah. capped. That's right. And when you're capped, it takes away it removes your imagination basically. In and wasn't the main character like he sort of became friends with his alien master? I he, thought he sort of he had does. a friendly in, one in the second book, yeah. Because he's the whole first book is him realizing what's happening, and he meets this old man named Ozymandias, mm -hmm. who tells him to travel to the White Mountains somewhere in in like Switzerland, right? Because there's humans who are surviving. Okay. And so the first book is the travel there, and it's awesome. It's really, really great. Man, I want to reread. This is one I'm going to have to reread. Uh, well, and the thing that's cool it's is they did so a long. they did a, ser a BBC series. That's right. Yeah. In there was 1980, a BBC series. that's pretty great. Yeah, 
it's dated and and uh, stuff, but they tell the story very well. And I actually was watching that series when my kids were really little, and Jill, when she hears yeah. that opening theme song, <laughs> she's like, "No, turn it down." She kind of. <laughs> Uh, so you 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 talk about the next oh, one. Oh man, the Horse Clan series. Yeah, these are great by Robert Adams. Uh this again, this is another one. I, I remember you had them all and I, you probably got them from your brother Paul. Yeah. And you gave them to me and I read them and I just bought another one, A Cat of a Silvery Hue. I haven't I haven't read it in so long, but I just got it and I'm trying to reread it. But uh these are great, man. These, these were post-apocalyptic America. Mm-hmm. And uh, so people were tribal, right? And it was this clan of people who were telepathic, yeah. and they could communicate with these great cats, yeah, like cougars, sort of based on the kind from the weren't they cougars or They're something, like panthers, something or, like that, yeah. And it and it was just really violent, Conanish, Robert E. Howard, super, violent, yeah. super hack and slash, but post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. And I had never read that as a kid until I read this. Where it was like Conan in the apocalypse, yeah, and it, it was so violent. And the vi- and the violence in the beginning of it, it actually reminded me of the Iliad. Oh it yeah, because remi- I remember we had we had studied Latin. Uh, Matt's mom was a Latin teacher, and we continued taking it in high school. And at one point, uh, you know, I had to translate like the Iliad parts of it in Latin yeah, into sections, English, yeah. and this reminded me of that. All the battles, like yeah. you know, spears going through people's legs, and yeah. you know, well, limbs getting hacked thing, off, and there's that it was, one it was passage so violent, in the Iliad where they he throws a spear and it goes into the guy's eye and goes all the way down through his, his body, body yeah. yeah, and comes out like his butt or and, something. And that's the kind of stuff that that's, happens in these books. Yeah, yeah, just graphic <laughs> battle action that I. <laughs> Absolutely loved, and the they were the what was the tribe's name? Wasn't it like the Americans? There's or Americans, and then the, there's the uh, Eli or something. Or is that what their name? Was? I don't remember. I don't. Man, it's been so long. I'm gonna have to reread it. But I just remember how they there was a band of Nazis traveling yeah. across America in their campers and trucks, yeah, like uh, killing people, and that's who they rose against, and that was like their enemy. Well, the like, main uh, character in the yeah. first few first few novels is uh, High Lord Milo Morai, who's like this. Un- he's called the Undying. He's been alive for like three hundred years or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And um, the thing that's cool too is that there's um, what are they're like these these guys who live in the city who are like these post apocalyptic scientists who found a way to ch- put their brains into other bodies. So they've yeah. been living for a long that's time. Right. And they're called the Witchmen. The Witchmen. Yeah. Oh, man. amazing. Good stuff. Well, the thing that's weird, too, is the guy, Robert Adams, who wrote these, actually got his start writing erotic fiction. What? Yeah. Well, I'm glad he switched to post-apocalyptic. Me, too. He writes, he writes it very well. Uh, next is the other one. This is one that oh, Joe... Uh, this is one you Dude. introduced to me, and oh, I remember oh, reading man. it, trying to read it years ago, and not really yeah, getting it, and yeah. reading it recently and really enjoying it. Man, Hero's Journey by Sterling Lanier. Yeah. Sterling E. Lanier, 1973. What a great book! I, I read it when I was a kid, and I just I bought it recently and reread it during the coronavirus stuff, and um, it it held up. I remember it was difficult to read as a kid because yeah. it's just yeah. I mean, this is the this this guy's the type of writer you know you'll have like a page long paragraph, and it just, it just it just goes on and on and on and just his descriptions, but it's brilliant. It's. Yeah. It's like you know what I think it's like three to six thousand years after the apocalypse. It's a, it's a guy in Canada, 
of a tribe of Canadian indigenous people who's a priest in the future and they hunt and fight mutants Mm -hmm. and he has a moose that he rides a telepathic moose who's his friend and he makes friends with a bear a telepathic bear and that's right they they join him on his journeys as he fights the lemutes the (laughs) huge uh tribes of raving mad cannibalistic evil mutant wolverines amazing give me a break how cool is that yeah yeah and uh and then the whole thing, it's appropriately named Hero's Journey. He's traveling the whole time yeah. and surviving, going through, you know, huge forests with trees the size of, like, cities because yeah. everything's mutated and got so big. He's fighting, like, frogs and turtles the size of dump trucks. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great book. If you love post-apocalyptic fiction as much as us, man, well, Hero's and- Journey. And the, well, the cool thing is... I've talked about this before. The guy who wrote this, Sterling Lanier, he was the editor for the publishing company that published Dune, and he convinced them to publish Dune by Frank Herbert, and he got fired later because of it because sales for Dune were so bad. This guy lost his job for getting Dune published. Amazing. And now it's like considered one of the greatest science fiction books of all time. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, that's crazy. That's one that I uh, I remember, like you said, I remember trying to read it and not really connecting with it and reading, coming back to it later mm-hmm. and just absolutely loving it. And hello, welcome back everybody. Uh, this is Matt again. We're going to do uh, move into the practices section of our podcast. Uh, this is our third one, I think. Yep, our third podcast already. Yeah. Wow. I know, it's awesome. awesome. So Joe is going to uh, kind of take the lead on this one, so All go right. for it, mister. Cool. So um, t- today's isn't so much about a particular practice as it is about just the importance of writing every day. I know I touched on that before, yeah. but I was reading something really cool over the week. I I found this um, book of short stories by Robert Silverberg. Have yeah. you ever read any of his science fiction? I have. Uh, he wrote um, Lord Valentine's Castle, which is one of my favorite science fiction <laughs> slash fantasy novels. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, absolutely. so I actually haven't read that. I've heard yeah, you, you talk should. about it. It's but amazing. I've, but I love these short stories. This is called The Conglomeroid Cocktail Party. <laughs> amazing. It's a book of his short stories, and the reason I wanted to talk about it is because in his introduction, he talks about how he in later on in life after writing all these novels and short stories he went through a period of a long period of like five years where he couldn't write anything he couldn't he he said he couldn't produce anything and so it got me thinking about writer's block you know that's a big topic with writers and since you know this is a podcast for writers yeah um i wanted to bring it up you know because you know people who want to be writers, they talk about it, they love writing, they consider themselves writers, but they literally don't write anything because it seems like they're always facing some sort of writer's block. Right. So, that's, like, I mean, that's yeah. one of the things I just wanted to mention, and I forget who, I forget, oh, it's, I think it's Bradbury, actually. One of the things he talks about specifically is, he's, is he says uh, the difference between being a writer and a hobbyist is mm-hmm. what you is how much writing you actually produce yeah, exactly yeah. yeah I think and so yeah because I mean we know people like, I know people who they, they want to be writers they may have degrees in writing they've studied it their whole lives but they may only write like you know one short story every two years yeah. or something but um, 
So how do you build a, a discipline of daily writing? Like, uh, like, like what works for you? What, what, how do you, how do you get into it? How do you build a, a daily habit of writing? Well, the only thing that's ever worked for me, uh, is just setting aside, uh, you know, like I would try to set aside a small amount of time to get a certain number of words down every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, uh, you know, years ago I was doing that thing where I was trying to always write like a page a day. Oh yeah. And I did that for a long time and I got to the point where I could sit down and in 45 minutes hammer that page out mm-hmm. and, uh, then be done and move on. And it was awesome. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the key. I mean, it's not, it's not a deep secret. It's just to sit down and at least do what I say one page a day yeah. like that. 500 words. 500 words. Yeah. No matter what. And so... Um, it, what, the reason I brought up a Robert Silverberg is because he talks about how during that five-year period, a friend of his wanted him to write a short story for Omni Magazine, and so he decided to get back into writing. He sort of, he wanted to write this short story for his friend, uh, and he said it took him to getting back into it, it took him like a whole week just to write one page. That's crazy. Whereas before, when he was when he was in the discipline of writing, when he was really getting into it, he was doing. He said he was writing three or four short stories a week. Yeah, wow. Um, but he said he wrote it, and it took a long time, and he eventually got this short story done, and then he went into one of the most prolific phases of writing in his life, where he wrote more short stories than he had ever written. Yeah, you know, during his entire life. And so, if you get a chance to read his introduction in the conglomeroid uh, cocktail party, I suggest it. And so, what what I wanted to say is that, you know, if you're struggling to write and you want to be a writer and you have really cool stories you want to tell, you need to have the mentality that writing writing has to be important to you. It has to be one of yeah. the foremost things, you know. So, do, like, do you know any dedicated runners? Oh yeah, you absolutely. used to really be into I running. I, I mean, did. you were a long distance like you. You really yeah. for a while there. Yeah. And so, if you know a runner who does it for marathons and they're really committed to it, do you, you know? Do they stop running just one morning because there's a good TV show they want to catch? Yeah, no, they don't. Do they? Do they ever? Do you, if you know runners, do they ever like eat too much, feel tired, and then just decide <laughs> instead of running for that day to relax and play a good video game? Yeah, no, they're very, they're so regimental. About about doing it, and that's how you have to be. Yeah, I agree with your writing. And I think we sort of tend to uh, get into this magical thinking we have as writers that we're like writing geniuses. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of it. Especially those of us who, like me, who've gone to school and studied it. You think, oh, I'm I'm, I'm some sort of writing, you know, uh, protege. I'm going to sit down, you know, once a year and produce a brilliant story yeah. or. One of these days, I'll sit down and write just the greatest novel ever. ever. Or maybe it's not like that with you. Maybe you've just been sort of slowly working on the same novel for 10 years and trying to finish it. And you can't get anything done because you'll get excited about it once every few months and do a couple pages on it and come back to it a few months later. Um, It's what you write today that counts as a writer. So, you know, I'd just like to encourage everyone, as soon as you finish listening to this podcast and listening to our great narrated flash fiction at the end, <laughs> sit down and write your one page for the day. Just 500 words of anything. Yeah. Uh, a short story, a bunch of drabbles, or, or just a page on your novel. 
You know, push all your excuses aside yeah. and try and develop a discipline of it. Yeah. You know, right when you're sick, uh, Joyce Carol Oates talks about that. Mm-hmm. She says it's really important to write when you're sick, when you're not feeling well. That makes it that much easier yeah. when you're feeling well. Uh, right when you're angry, you know, you've been fighting with your spouse or your parents or your kids, you know, and uh, things aren't going well. Right when you don't know how you're going to pay the bills, when you're worrying about the bank account, you know, just take all that crap in life and try and express it, try and put it in your writing and just sort of no excuses. Because I think, I think of writing as creation. You know, we have the fantastic ability to make whole worlds and beings and situations and the stories are what we're going to leave behind to fire the future imaginations of people. So, you know, if if it's something you love like us, just make it a priority and just start with a really easy, doable amount every day, just a page a day. Yeah. That's the thing. It gets me excited because I think I want to say that we talked about this once before, uh, maybe on the very first practice. Oh, we have. Yeah. And we probably will keep talking about it. I think we're going to say this over and over and over. And I think one of the greatest examples of, of doing that is, uh, was just was Bradbury. And one, one of the things he talks about specifically is he challenges. There's a uh, talk he gave to a, a group of graduating writers from a, uh, creative arts program somewhere I don't remember right. where it was it's on YouTube at least but yeah where he says uh, he encourages people to set aside the novel you're working on mm-hmm. and just for a year write mm-hmm. a short just finish a short story a week I love it yeah and then he says I defy you at the end of those 52 weeks mm-hmm. to not have a couple good stories in there and what's cool mm-hmm. you could you could spend that whole year working on a novel and at the end of that year that novel may not be any good Exactly. Yeah, yeah, but at the end of fifty-two weeks of working on that, that the on short stories, there's going to be some in there that are going to be worth something. And it's like they talk about too. For uh, if 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 people are interested in getting into uh, making movies, mm-hmm. one of the greatest ways they say to learn how to do it and how to do it well and cheaply and quickly is to work on commercials because it's the same thing that you do ah, in a long form okay, but okay. shortened down to a minute. Makes sense. But every aspect. Excuse yeah. me. Every aspect of what you do for a film, you do also for commercials. Mm-hmm. So you can learn all of the things you need, shortcuts and all that kind of business mm-hmm. uh, for the short form, and uh, then take that and transplant it into longer stuff when you work on start working on novels. There you go. Um, but that, yeah, that's fantastic. I completely agree. A page a day, five hundred words a day, and then the other side of it too is I would also say. There are times when you feel like you should keep going, mm-hmm. but you should actually stop yourself and yeah. stay at that 500 words yeah. and don't push anymore because yeah. you may end up doing something you don't like. Yeah, don't stress yourself out. Uh-uh. Don't you know? Take a day off each week. Yeah. I like to take a couple days off every week, uh, maybe a Saturday and Sunday, and not do any writing and just all I do is read. Yeah, or or just enjoy myself and look for ideas yeah. to write about. Absolutely. So. And I think, too, one last final little thing is, um, uh, and you, you mentioned it a little bit, <clears throat> but the biggest thing is that we need to get, as writers, the, the uh, doing, getting used to doing this every day, regardless of whether you feel like it, is one mm-hmm. of the most important things we can do. Because if you rely on only writing when you feel inspired, you won't get anything done. No. no and one exactly. of the greatest things that can happen, and, it's, and, and I say this 
having been through it and trying to get that feeling back mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is uh, there was a chunk of time when I was working on I was actually post I was uh, doing a blog or I was posting a page today and I was working on a big sci- uh, fantasy novel that ended up not being all that great but mm-hmm. the thing that was super cool was that after doing that for over, almost over a year uh, I went back and I started rereading some of the stuff and you know like when you go back and you look at things that you've read you can usually tell when you're reading something that's inspired right. and something that was a slog yeah what's awesome is that I could look back and I couldn't tell the difference oh wow and okay. that was one of the most exciting points for me that that's I ever cool. reached uh, and so yeah. that that yeah so it's possible and it's just the practice and the art of determination really and doing it every day yeah and, and and you know and you'll you'll meet writers. I know there's people out there, uh, horror writers and other people. I've I've heard talking about how they just sit down and write ten thousand words. I don't know how they do that, but don't. Yeah, you know if you can't do that, don't even strive for it. Yeah, really, a page a day is enough. If if you wrote five hundred words a day, five days a week. You could easily write a novel in six months. Yeah. Easily. Easily. And, you know, within a f- just a few days, you'll have a, a, a short story that you can go back and rework and fix and do all that kind of stuff. That's right. You know, you don't, uh, yeah, don't think of... You, know, you don't have to be Stephen King. You don't. you don't have to be Tolstoy. Yeah. Be yourself, but be a writer and build a, the minimal discipline for it. Yeah. You know, just like... Uh, it's like anything. Yeah. Anything you want to get good at, you yeah, have you, to I mean, work if you, on. If you're going to lose day. weight, you mm-hmm. have to not you have to not eat as much. You know, like if you wanna if you wanna exercise, if you wanna get feeling better, you have to exercise and you have to go through that difficult part of pushing and and uh, <clears throat> the you know, struggle digging, the struggle of like digging digging your heels in <clears throat> and doing the actual work. There's a great quote from C.S. Lewis where he talks about um, it's, it's the difference between someone who fell in love with stories of uh, of the Iliad and the Odyssey when they were a kid right and then when they grow up they try to learn Greek <laughs> and he said it's like it's it's that's the difference it's, that's it's, great. it's shifting from enjoying something to actually making it your job and when you mm-hmm. when you make that step it's difficult and it can be hard sometimes yep yeah so we just wanted to encourage you, and uh, Joe, that was awesome. Thank you Thank so you. much. Yeah. We're going to move in now to the uh, audio production that we did this week. Oh, uh, boy. Which was a story that Joe wrote uh, called, uh, what is it called? It's called Something of Afaish. <laughs> I have it here. It's called The, the testing, testing of Afaish. Of Afaish. And it was a, uh, a kind of a post-apocalyptic story that Joe oh, wrote. Oh, man, this is a good one because, uh, uh, man... Uh, Matt did some great sound effects in it, and his daughters are acting in it, and his wife. Yeah, that's right. I got has them. a few lines. <laughs> They're all in. Yeah. Oh wow. This, well, this we is were... prob- This is probably. Uh, well, I don't know. The last one was pretty darn good yeah. too. I mean, these, I think we're getting better. Yeah, we're, we're getting better. definitely that's, getting better as we go along. The cool is after the 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 one we did last week. Keep, uh, keep the light on for me. That that was a story that I had written. And Jill did the reading and narration for. We were super impressed with it. Joe loved what how she did it. That he went ahead and just wrote this story for her to do yeah. this week. Yeah, I'm gonna have to write stories just for Jill to yeah. do. There's she's so good. Yeah. So, and so uh, there you go. Enjoy, and we will see you next week.
During winters of ash, my family clears out deep caves in the hills of concrete and rust. We burrow and scavenge for the materials to construct the four prime tools. During the summers of the boiling sun, we travel as far as we can to the north until we meet the steaming banks of the sea. Always, we avoid the dark ruins of the southern cities of the bygone race, places forbidden by our elders. We are pious, and everywhere we travel, we raise the sacred effigy of Chokmendra. We place him in the center of our camp as a totem, and his vulture's head is always pointed to the northeast. His four winged arms each hold a different prime tool. In his right hands, he holds the jabber and the clubber. The cleavish and the shiv are in his left. In the autumn of my 15th year, the great drums of Hopgoth Hyde pulse over the land and announce the moot of all peoples. We travel toward the sound and convene around the Mesa of Glass. Old Magra Dra, mother of all, stands before us. Who shall step forward to be considered a battler of the peoples? Three step out and stand before her to give their consent. Two are boys, and one is a girl like me, though older and heavier. Last, I step forward. I! I agree to the testing! Doubtless, I am the weakest of them, and a few in our tribe are surprised that I have spoken. But in secret, I have long planned a stratagem for this day, and if I die, then I am ready. My spirit will be welcome to the places between the stars. Since the time of great sickness, we have upheld this tradition. Four will walk upon Brachna, and only one will return a battler. So be it! After the feast of charred pit barkers, we each pay our respects to Chokmendra. We say farewell to our families and set forth under the looming shadow of the Mesa. The scree is slippery and the way is treacherous. At one point, a slither hisses out from a tuft of dry sage, ready to strike the other girl. But I stomp on its head with my heel. Thank you. May Chokmandra grant you guile. May he grant you guile! By the time we reach the top, we're already exhausted and dripping with sweat. We remove our clothing, as is tradition, and stand naked under the eye of Solon, the sun giant. With the emerald sheen before us, we wait for that eye to reach its zenith. Another conch blast echoes, a signal for the test to commence. In unison, we step onto the blistering surface of that plane and pad toward the center. Each step is placed with ginger anticipation and a wince of pain. The brittle surface was once smooth long ago but generations of initiates have caused a network of dendritic cracks, and I'm careful to avoid shards that could slice my feet. In the center is a circle of blue chalk, a five feet span in diameter. Inside of it are multiple sets of the four prime tools, 
I select my tool, the shiv. The other girl selects the cleavish. The largest of the boys, stout and muscular, takes the clubber. The other boy, lanky and tall, selects the jabber. We crouch into our fighting stances, each with a forward toe touching the circumference of the circle. The conch is blown for the third and last time. The jabber boy shuffles toward me and thrusts high with his weapon. I roll backward and the bladed tip misses me by inches. But the boy doesn't pursue me. As I thought it would be, I'm considered the least threatening. The jabber boy stays put and turns to face the others. The cleavish girl dodges the strikes of the clubber boy. He presses her backward with sweeping swings. When one overhead swing comes down, she rolls to the side. The clubber smashes into the glass, sending shards flying. The jabber boy moves alongside the clubber and begins thrusting at the girl also. They attack in tandem. She dives and twists and jumps to avoid the strikes from all directions. Heavy swings of the clubber. Lunging darts of the jabber. I spring into action. After shuffling back further, I begin breaking up the glass with the hilt of my ship. I squint against the glints of bright sunlight from the shards I select. Each is a foot long, a sharp point at both ends. I keep stacking the shards as the others fight. The boy with the jabber is out first. When the clubber swings too closely to the girl, she kicks him in the gut and he falls back. The jabber rushes her again, but she rolls forward also, underneath his strike, and swings her cleavish in a horizontal arc. Both of his feet are sheared off below the shins. With high, shrill screams, he drops to the glass, furtively trying to staunch the blood spurting. His dismembered feet still twitch. The clubber stands, enraged. He bellows a mighty growl and rushes, swinging down with an overhead strike once again. She doesn't expect his burst of speed and dives to the side too late. The clubber comes down on her shoulder and smashes her to the glass. I begin throwing the shards. Just as I've practiced for years, I sink low and spin into each hurl. The shards whistle through the air at their target. The first flies past the clubber's head and he turns from the girl. He rushes me. But all he's doing is giving me a clear target. My second throw puts a shard in his left leg and slows him. The third shard hits him in the stomach and he slows even more, clutching his gut with one hand while still dragging the clubber with the other. My last throw takes him in the neck, severing through arteries. He falls to the earth, wide-eyed, a red mist sprays around. I stand and walk to the girl. She writhes, groaning in pain. The bones of her right upper arm have been pulverized. The long, curved cleavage is still gripped uselessly in that hand. Make it quick. And may Chok Mendra guide your strike. Many years from now, when you're defending our people from the blood drives, remember me. But I don't kill her. Instead, I help her up, and she is amazed. She winces and cries in pain, but eventually she's able to stand. Return to the moot. Magraja will see to you, and you'll learn to use the cleavish one-handed. You'll be the next battler of Apakadra. But I refuse to kill you. I don't expect you to kill me. I'm leaving for the forbidden lands of the south, the old cities. Say nothing. I decided this long ago. I don't understand. I don't understand why you do this. But I'm grateful. Please, give me your name. I am Afaish, 
I am Mara Shaw, and I will always honor you. I help her to the edge of the mesa, and she begins her descent. I gaze over the valley of the moot one last time. She stops halfway down and turns to wave at me. She shouts, If someday I bear a child, it will be named Afa Ish. Back at the center circle, I select a cleavish and a jabber for myself. I walk further to the other side of the mesa, and on that slope I find my hidden supplies. I put on a clean sarong, vest, and sandals, and heft my pack on my shoulders. Far in the south, on the horizon, are the broken columns and spiraling structures of the ancient bygones. All my life, I've dreamed of exploring them. And now I shall. From this day forward, my people will consider me dead, but the unknown awaits. Places spoken of only in legends. I set forth. I'd like to thank you for listening to the Tales of the Fantastic podcast with Matthew Moan and Jan Cameron, brought to you by Tuesday Night Publishing. All music and sound effects licensed from Artlist.com. Follow us and join in on the conversation on Facebook. We'll see you next time.